You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. You are listening to The Magnet Theater Podcast. Welcome. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. And today I'm speaking with the great John Bander. Bander, thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me. Bander, can you explain the Malkovich? Sure. The Malkovich was a form that Aquarius developed uh, in a rehearsal with Ashley Ward. Basically, the idea is in a in like a musical narrative, in like the regular narrative, there's like a protagonist, and they have to sort of wit- carry the story. And it's sometimes not the most fun thing to have because the um, the show's weight depends on you. While mm. everyone else sort of gets to have a ton of fun, you sometimes need to be that person that's just like, well, you know, I got to make sure that people care whether or not I get this want or not. And so we on Aquarius were like a lot of goofballs and often Laura Delug would have to like <laughs> carry our show. And so we were trying to figure out a way to not have one person just be the protagonist. So we did a form that was basically, we were just like, hey, let's try it like being John Malkovich, where somebody would enter the role of the protagonist in a different scene. And so you take over, each person would play that protagonist in a different scene at a different point of their lives. And it just ended up exactly solving that problem of like uh, one person would be responsible for keeping the emotional weight of the piece in that scene and everyone else sort of got to have fun around them. Hmm. So it, it just ended up working and being this like really fun, awesome thing. Is it kind of like that Bob Dylan movie where they had like 10 different actors all playing Bob Dylan? Yeah, I'm not there, that one? Yeah. I assume, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's probably fun to play Bob Dylan. Uh, yeah, it must be. <laughs> uh, uh, it's easy to play Bob Dylan. We can all agree on that. Yeah. It's just, super simple to play Bob Dylan. That's why he's such a popular sketch character. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, that's interesting. So how do, you, how do you keep it consistent for the audience so that it's easy for them to follow? Um, you generally just name the person at the beginning and you yeah. say like, okay, this is different. This is a different situation. And you just make sure that um, whoever comes in initiates and makes sure that they know because it's generally different parts of a person's life as we don't stay in the same age. Yeah. So generally it's like, uh, you know, we did one about, um, Prince Harry and it was like, uh, Hey, you know, our first, uh, we would joke that like our first scene is always like, uh, X you're so weird or you know, Tesla or any Einstein, anything. It's like, you know, whoever, you're so weird as a child, mm-hmm. you're not going to do anything. It's basically like, you, name, will not be profession. Uh-huh. And we're like, yes, I will be profession. Uh-huh. And then it's like on the way to profession and achieve profession, moment of doubt about profession, and then, hey, I'm known for profession. Is that actually the template for most of those shows? You, you, you will never get to do this thing? Well, no, you... No, sometimes we would say like the, the death, oh, you know, okay. or, or yeah. like, or like after you're known, but sometimes the people died infamous, you know? So yeah. it's like, or, or just not known. Yeah. So it depends on the person, but it is like, um, we show them it generally, we try to show them getting what they want and then that it's not necessarily what they wanted mm-hmm. and then, um, close it sometimes in a good way. Sometimes, you know, just like dead in a ditch, Yeah. but which is whatever. Also we're, you know, part of the fun of, Musical improv is like knowing that a train needs to get from point A to point B mm-hmm. and then keep pushing it so it looks like it won't get to the station. Yeah. How, so, how do you do that? Well, you, you just surprise each other. 
you know, you, um, you try and you, you, you hope everyone has an idea that of where we need to get to and, and sort of a decent resolution, but then you surprise each other from within. You maybe kill somebody who seemed really important, like the protagonist, you know, mm-hmm. or something like that. But you basically just, you know, improv sort of part of the joy of it is the idea that it might all fall down. Mm-hmm. So every time it doesn't, that's great. So you just try and, you know, keep it fresh by, by, um, throwing in little twists and turns that you're like, okay, we have to solve this quickly. Just keep yourself thinking quickly. And I find that that's a really good way to, you know, if you give yourself too much time a lot in improv, you can drown Mm -hmm. in the number of possibilities that you have. Mm -hmm. But if you tie one hand behind your back, you just say like, okay, I'm going to play the best character I can that has one hand tied right behind their back. Right. So in that way you limit your choices to be able to, to take away the idea that you have unlimited possibilities. So mm-hmm. you just quickly try and solve it. Uh, how, cause you, you've basically had like a, a firsthand um, like view on like the entire development of the musical improv scene. How does like the, the musical improv seems to have taken a very narrative direction how does that differ from what non-musical improvisers are experiencing when they're doing their long forms? Like it, it I guess structurally, in terms of the whole package of, of like the product that you're offering, but also I guess strategically in your mind when you're improvising in that form, what adjustments do you have to make to, to make it work? Well, I, I like to say that um, musical improv's narrative is sort of like musicals, musical improv's herald, mm. where it's like you need to know there is a certain pressure that you need to get somewhere and there's a structure that you need to, that you have, but you need to be able to look like it's not there. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to live within the, the pressure of getting somewhere. So if a story is called, you know, the old mill massacre, you know, at some point, like everyone's got to get to the old mill mm-hmm. and we got to see what this is. But the key is to not have to, it's sort of like a vente. Um, you know, something needs to happen, but the key is to not make it, not say at the beginning of a sentence like, uh, or at the beginning of a scene, Hey, let's all go to the old mill. Mm -hmm. You know, it's gotta, there's gotta be some surprise within that. So I think in that way, it takes a very specific window and of like temperament of saying like, I I'm aware of the responsibilities of this scene, but I'm not letting that crush me from having a good time. Mm -hmm. It, it, it almost seems like that's why, um, Hey, young Einstein, you're so weird. You'll never grow up to live out your dreams is such a great way to start a show because it, it, it's pretty much the same thing as, as calling the show like the spooky old mill and then starting the show with someone saying, you'll never get me to go to the spooky old mill. It, it, it basically lays out your course of direction. What, it, you know, I, I forget where I read it. But I thought a really good piece of advice when you're, it's about scripted shows, but it, it was about figuring out your arc over the course of the show. And they were like, when all else fails, just look at where you end up at the end of the show and be the opposite of that at the beginning, <laughs> which is great advice. It, it, you know, like thinking like that is really helpful on your feed. Yeah, uh, it is. It is true. It's sort of like writing a mystery backwards. Yeah. Another thing I used to joke about this all the time, um, but I wasn't really joking too much when I was uh, coaching some musical improv groups uh, that when in doubt, just do a who am I song. 
Yeah. And it, the joke was that that's like your fail safe move, but it works every single time. There's no, it's inescapably effective. Yeah, that's true. It's also like, it's, it's because it's a great reason to sing. It's, yeah. it's something you'll always want to have sung, you know, yeah. like, no one's ever just going to say out loud, this is who I am and these are my fears. Yeah. But it's the perfect thing to sing. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are some things like that. Like, I feel like a lot of times in musical classes, I'll say like, hey, do you know why we learned a lesson right there? Because it was the time in the show where we needed to learn a lesson. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, even if the climax of the big brawl was just two people slapping each other, it's time to say like, oh man, I, when you slap me, I learned something. Yeah. Just because it's time, you know, it's like it's we're 22 in and we need to have learned that fighting is not the answer. Yeah. And even if that's that was like a minor slap, it it affected you in a big way because it has to. Yeah. That's kind of one of the like nice aspects of musical improv, because like I have certainly used the boy, we sure have learned a lesson here today (laughs) move dozens of times in shows. And it's always because I'm looking at the clock and I see that the show's over or it's just for a while it was like my go-to when I didn't know how to end a show. It was just like, well, here's the lesson that we can extract. Yeah. Sometimes I forget who it was, but there was a tech who like knew that I would do it. So he just wouldn't black the show out after the lesson, you know, (laughs) just to kind of like see where we, Yeah. but it's the kind of thing that like in a non-musical show that can sort of stick out sometimes if it's not really kind of. Sure. Fluid. But in musical, you're kind of protected because everything is already so heightened um, uh, and so exaggerated that moves like that are, are more than welcome. Yeah. They're, they're part of like the fun of, of, of the format. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to realize that regular improv and musical improv are very different mm-hmm. and supposed to be. Like um, Winston Noel had a great quote when he was talking to, he was coaching Aquarius. He said that, you know, uh, most regular improv is like a, um, a heightened version of reality, whereas musical improv is a heightened version of musical theater mm-hmm. or like a riff on musical theater, mm-hmm. which is already so heightened. So it requires a certain schizophrenia mm-hmm. of like, and a certain cartoonishness. Like that's what I love about it is the, the cartoonish fun that you can have in that where you can just throw away a lot of stuff and you can play within genre because people already know so much mm-hmm. and they know that there can just be a potion or something like that. Yeah. So I do musical improv because I can, you know, in two lines, I can say something incredibly stupid. And then the next line I can be incredibly, uh, emotional or want or deep into my want again, Mm -hmm. because that's the reality of musical theater. And I think it's, you're aiming for two different things, you know, like I think people should know that they're supposed to be different. Um, and I think that's part of where the sort of discord comes from or disconnect is that you shouldn't make the same moves in a musical improv show as you do in a regular improv show a lot and vice versa. You have an interesting story because you were not a musical theater guy growing up, right? Mm -hmm. No, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, right now I'm doing, uh, pretty much exclusively musical improv and character comedy, mm-hmm. both of which I used to absolutely hate. Um, what changed for you? Well, uh, for musical improv, I was just, I'm a comedian, you know, I'm not like a musical improv is, uh, lucky enough to be where, uh, many untalented male comedians 
meet many classically trained, like singing, dancing, <laughs> uh, insanely talented uh, female improvisers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not fair to them. But, <laughs> but um, uh, like I came from a comedy background where I was just like, you know, I just want to do improv from a, you know, just just because it's fun and just from a comedy perspective, I'm not like a theater person. And then um, I got a job, you know, uh, Garrett Palm used to manage Baby Wants Candy. And mm-hmm. then Garrett was this uh, improviser who would stick around for six months and then take six months to go travel the world. So when he was gone, he had me fill in as like a tour manager for Baby Wants Candy. And I just watched them for like a year. And it just all of a sudden, it made sense to me why people wanted to do musical improv. And and because I don't want to sing on stage. I still don't necessarily. But it's, um, you're allowed to be so cartoonishly fun. Mm -hmm. And I'm like a child of Looney Tunes and The Simpsons. So like to me, the closer I can get to Daffy Duck, the the better. Right. And this was it. This is the ability. And it's, once I saw that, that it's, not at all about how well you can sing, though, frankly, there are some great singers, and I'm sure there are always people who want better singers in musical improv. Um, the bigger thing is actually just being willing to go out there and sing. Yeah. And once you do that, you realize, like, for me, what I love about musical improv most is just that it's double the heroine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the heroine of making up a scene and the heroine of making up a song. Mm. It's just a more concentrated hit once I sort of got used to the heroine of regular improv. That's interesting that you use heroin as, as your drug of choice in that metaphor. Does it calm you down when you're playing? Uh, oh, totally. I'm the kind of guy who's nervous. Well, I'm not really nervous so much before I go on stage anymore, but yeah. it used to be like I was nervous until I got on stage, especially in stand-up or something like that when yeah. I was performing. I'd be that guy practicing his his routine in the bathroom mirror like pacing and just writing you know repeating repeating but once i get on stage then it's gone you know but i'm that kind of guy like you i'm like nervous or shy or whatever and then you put me on stage and i light up yeah so it is it is totally calming for me to be on stage that's interesting it's the opposite for me i think i i i have a hard time being energetic or very enthusiastic in my day-to-day business. <laughs> I, you know, like I'm just kind of like a, um, a, a muffled uh, level of enthusiasm all the time. And it, like it takes a lot, like even coffee doesn't perk me up. I could like feel it trying to, yeah. but there's like some inertia inside of me that just like holds it down. So coffee will make me like sleepier than I was before <laughs> I had the coffee because I'm just like struggling with with this energy. Yeah, Improv gives me a hit of of that's like the place where the channels like open and and then the energy level goes up, which, you know, I'm a pretty slow improviser, so it may not look like I'm energetic, but I feel lit up in a way that I don't normally when I'm not not doing shows. But that's, that's exactly how I, I don't know that that's the opposite. Well, for me, it's not like a, I guess it, it's not like a calming my nerves down. It's like a waking up of, Oh, you know what I mean? Well then I would say I'm exactly that thing too of it is like, I'm not nervous, but I am super excited yeah. to be on stage. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. Like I, you know, in my regular life, like I walk around and sometimes mutter to myself. <laughs> like yeah. I'm just like, a, um, as an individual human, it's, it's funny. Cause I often think that like, um, you'll see Bander 
on stage. And then sometimes you'll meet John mm-hmm. uh, off stage and John is not banter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, yeah, just basically about, um, how I'm, I'm, I love being on stage. I'm very animated and everything like that. Yeah. And, you know, um, but as like a, as a, especially in, in this, uh, I actually just talked about this for you are not alone. Um, but, uh, which is a great show that Grant runs. I'm pointing to Grant if for everyone not here, which is everyone. Uh, Grant is on Bander's left right now, so you can visualize <laughs> the room. But I pointed with my right hand. Yeah, he did a nice sweep. It was it was not really a point so much as like a cupping of the hand and a sweeping across the body. It was very dramatic. Mm. Yeah. Well, I do teach musical improv. <laughs> um, but like, uh, you know, kind of like, uh, Bander, I think Bander is like a character mm-hmm. and he's, I, I love it. You know, like I'm not trying to get too deep into it, but like I'm basically, I grew up a math science person. Mm-hmm. So performing was not my biggest thing. You know, like I was very much the kind of kid who wants a good grade and like is very glad to hear what the homework is because when the homework's done, the rest of the time is mine. Mm-hmm. So like this style of living, the performer style is certainly not that. Mm-hmm. So it came not that uh, naturally to me. Um, and I, I still, you know, still not my greatest uh, thing is uh, sort of schedule management and just like, you know, being structureless. Yeah. Um, but, um, but, you know, like uh, I can get it very animated and I, I have a side of me that's like really fun, like very cartoony. And I feel like that comes out on stage a lot. What? brought you to it because you and i go back a ways you and i both started level one together Mm -hmm. um uh for math and science guy and a shy guy excuse me no (laughs) that truck really agrees yeah (laughs) Uh, uh as a shy math and science guy for whom performing doesn't necessarily uh, come as like a first nature thing what brought you to that level one class well, I always loved comedy, but mm-hmm. I never thought real people did it. I just thought it was like a bunch of, it was like two, either two type of people, people gutting fish all the time who were like, hey, maybe I'm funny. I'll go to the club. Or like people whose families are doing comedy. <laughs> so it's like never anyone right in the middle. Uh-huh. You're, either, you're either born into it or blue collar. Exactly. It's either like, yeah, like my hands are all covered in fish guts. Uh-huh. Yeah, you ever notice? Like, and then... Like Harvard people, like The Simpsons, right? right yeah. Um, so I just thought nobody, you know, nobody ever kind of gets into it, and it certainly was like not a thing that I could admit that I felt I could admit to my family or anything like that, or that I thought I wanted to pursue. So I was a computer science major, and then uh, I sort of freaked out in college, and I decided to switch majors because I thought if you graduate with a uh, computer science degree, you have to program for the rest of your life and basically sit in a basement and become a computer, mm-hmm. um, which are cool. But you know, maybe there was a, a bit where I was like, Hey, I don't, I don't think that I want to do that. Yeah. This stuff doesn't light me up. And I'd started like programming activities at Rutgers and that lit me up. Like I was doing that for free and working super hard and I loved it. Uh, you know, like comedy events and movies and stuff like that. And, uh, but and then um, I would do com- you know computer science problems, discrete math, and things like that. And I was like, I'm doing fine at this, but man, I hate it. Mm. Um, 
and I, I, I always wanted to do comedy. So I would book comedy events and I would like, I would book like open mics and I'd be like, Oh, you know what? Since I booked it, maybe I'll put myself on it. Mm -hmm. And I would do it. And you know, it felt great. I was terrible, but who cares? But then, um, my brother was friend was roommates with Chris Gethard at Rutgers. Mm -hmm. And so he, he knew Gethard and he knew Jamie Rivera and all that stuff. And actually my brother was kind of a legendary jerk to them, but that's like a side thing. Um, but um, if you're going to be a jerk, you might as well aim to be legendary about it. It was kind of like, imagine heckling a college improv show. Oh, like, geez. That's, that's my brother. Wow. <laughs> or was. Yeah. I, has, they, he, has he changed? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. But um, yeah, you know, he grew up like uh, um, when they first met me, it was like, but you're nice. Yeah. And so like, it was already like, oh, wow. Uh, what? Just tell us, I track a second. You may not be able to answer it, but like, What's the motivation behind heckling a college improv troupe? Is it is it just like to cause trouble? I think so. I also think it's like to prove that you're funnier than the people on stage. Yeah. Like my brother is a very funny guy. Yeah. He never, you know, like he wasn't on stage or anything like that. But it was always that like sort of, I, I got a lot of my comedy sense from my brother of like the, you know, a little bit of the jerk side of Daffy Duck or The mm-hmm. Simpsons. Or mm-hmm. it's like, so we were always as brothers, very competitive and stuff like that. But, you know, we had a certain funny sense and I think it was like part of trying to be funny yeah. from the audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So going on. So you were Sorry. programming shows at Rutgers. So I was programming shows at Rutgers and my brothers, uh, when I was off, my brother's friends were like, Hey man, you should go see ASCAT. Mm-hmm. And I saw it and it, I literally, I remember the feeling of like, cause I had been doing a little bit of stand up. But I, w- I was like a mean, you know, I like worship these like comedy cell, they call them the cellar dwellers, you mm-hmm. know, like, or did like these uh, tough, mean, uh, hilarious people, Attell and Jim Norton and all those mm-hmm. people. And we were trying to be those, those guys, but we were just telling really bad, I was telling like really bad fat jokes and, mm-hmm. you know, killing on a Wednesday night at Rutgers. But like, that's not what funny is. It's just like a bunch of people who are like, well, this place will serve me. Yeah. Um, and then I saw ASCAT and it was like, I felt like a street magician who was like doing card tricks. And then I saw an actual person do real magic. Yeah. And it was just like, I just felt like, I felt phony and I felt gut shot. I yeah. was just like, somebody came up to me and like shot a bolt of lightning was like, and somebody calls what we both do magic. Mm-hmm. Like it just seemed like from a, from a mathematical sense, it seemed like the derivative of comedy. Yeah. I was like, wherever, whatever, comedy is that's like the the nascent form that's like the pure form that's the ether of it yeah um and i want to learn that thing and then um i signed up and uh met you guys yeah what i like Atel. um i like jim norton too mm-hmm. but what is it about like the cellar dwellers what is it about that meanness that that works for you because i've always been I, I like those guys but i remember going to for senior prom I took Megan to uh, Carolyn's, I think, mm-hmm. to see like the late night show. And it was yeah. all like the really pissed off comics yeah. doing like a prom crowd show. Yeah. And it, it was just a really upsetting experience for me. <laughs> what, what's the deal with that? Um, what's the deal with mean comedy? Yeah. Um, I think at a certain point, at a certain, in a certain way, it's just an appreciation for the best joke. Yeah. Like even the one that cuts the audience out, 
there for me there was a certain there was a certain appreciation for that that's like you know the one that cuts the audience out the so the the it's a joke more for the other comedians in the room than for the audience well to me it's just it's it's the most it's it's the best it's like the the thing that nobody would say the most mm-hmm. do you know like and it it risks offense very often but like if everyone sort of had their if everyone was in a certain mindset everyone would think that that was like oh a really mm-hmm. a really insightful thing or mm-hmm. or something that you know it just it's fine because you shouldn't say it or something like that at the time i had a real appreciation for that but that was like you know kind of like a i'm in college like mm-hmm. f the world type thing do you um, think that some of that, like, I think about that when I think of Andy Kaufman sometimes mm-hmm. and he's in a different class of his own because of what he was doing was so weird and, 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 um, nobody else has really kind of like followed in his wake. But do you think that, that some of that is like a resentment against the audience? Like kind of a, I don't need you people kind of thing, like a, a, an anger at like sending a joke, not even above the heads of the audience, but sort of like through the audience, just kind of like a thing of like, uh, you don't have the right to, to, to judge my material. Yeah. I think a little bit only in that, um, you know, s- people trying to offend people is not necessary. is not funny. Yeah. It's just like not funny. Um, but I think there is, there is a sense where people would write jokes that are like, if you didn't have your guard up, wouldn't this be like with Andy Kaufman? It's like, if you were watching this and everyone's out, isn't the funniest joke, the one that nobody makes, even it's so funny that, that it's dangerous for me to do because all of you won't follow me because you're part of this joke. But to someone watching all of this, mm-hmm. that's the funniest joke because nobody has the guts to do that. Right. In his case, the punchline is 20 years later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so in a lot of ways, I have an appreciation for how that's the best joke. But, you know, honestly, like me and me and everyone who gets in trouble mm-hmm. thinks that intent is everything. Mm-hmm. So I think if you can see the intent and there's no malice in it, a lot of times if you are somebody who appreciates comedy and wants to just see like, Hey, that's the best joke. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's that funny. Also, like as far as like the seller people go, these are people who like grew up in comedy clubs. You know, they didn't have like alt clubs and stuff like this where the audience is a lot, is a lot like uh, more willing to listen and a lot sort of like softer, which is great. Um, but like, these are people who have had their guard up. Imagine if you still had your high school guard up like mm-hmm. every day, mm-hmm. Like sometimes somebody will call me fat and I'll be like, oh yeah, like I'll forget mm-hmm. because people aren't, you know, picking on me every day. Mm-hmm. But in these clubs, a lot of times you have to have your, you had to have had your guard up all the time. So you still have that sort of high school view of like, everyone's looking for a way to cut you. And like, I don't know about you, like, but I was never as sort of meanly funny as I was in high school. Mm. Um and that guy still lives in here. You just don't let him out. Yeah, yeah. I point I, into my head. I Bander just pointed to his head with a with a beautiful sweeping <laughs> gesture, and Grant uh, smiled about it. And Grant is still sitting to Bander's left, so um, you can visualize that picture. I was a little different in high school. I was I was, I guess, weird, funny. 
mm-hmm. I kind of embraced. I mean, I remember, I may have even talked about this on the podcast. I remember having like a, a very specific point in junior high school where like I made the conscious thought of, of well, if I deliberately act weird, then people making fun of me are only doing exactly what I'm inviting them to do. And so that sort of became my MO for the next several years was at first to like actively act like a weirdo all the time, followed by, I think, just sort of like a comfort at like, oh, it's okay if people are laughing at me. It, yeah. it, at first they don't like me, but then in time they seem to like me. So, you know, it, it kind of like lightened up a little bit. Do you think some of it too, especially in like the stand-up crowd, is um, the kind of like badge of honor of developing a thick skin about it that, I mean, you have these guys who are bringing their sensitivities and their insecurities on stage night after night and that there is a little bit of a thing of like you earn, you earn your membership in this club by, it's almost like the Hells Angels a little bit. Like, you know, they spit in each other's mouths and then they, you know what I mean? Like they have these kind of like tests to make sure that you're like tough enough to be part of the crew. Yeah. Is that also part of it? Like you just, you kind of like prove your, your, you, yeah. you prove your cojones. I think part of it is that like, I'll say right off the bat that I don't think I've done enough stand up to like represent the stand up community. Sure. These are just simple observations. But I think like, to me, it's sort of like people who write love songs. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, I, I want to hear a love song. I just don't want to hear one from some 16 year old who's going to say like, we're going to live forever. Right. Like, I think you have to have enough cuts and bruises on you in a certain way to like write a, to like earn the right to affect me with that song with a certain sort of like metaphor or poetry to it. Yeah. And I think that's part of it is like, you need to, you need to have your bona fides to earn the right to affect people with, you know, your airplane food jokes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so now you've seen ASCAT and now you have a sense of like, the real magicians, mm-hmm. which I think is a super apt uh, picture of it. That was totally the way that it felt. It, it, John O'Donnell has described it as like watching the Jedi masters work. Yeah. And you didn't even realize that there was such a thing as the force. And now you watch these guys who, who can manipulate it. Um, how like, cause in a way, uh, um, well, I guess like, Jeez, I don't even know exactly how to word the question that's in my mind about this. So I guess like one of the things that was so exciting for me when we first started going to UCB together was there was very much that underground um, feel. And there was that thing, kind of Kaufman-esque and kind of like, there's a, there's a point of view about comedy at UCB that is sort of about like, pushing buttons and kind of pushing the envelope. And it was super exciting, you know, like uh, um, there was like a rawness to it coupled with, oh, shit here is just so much smarter than I'm used to. It's, it's really juvenile and super smart at the same time. Um, so I remember like that really kind of watering the roots, you know, it, it, it that like, got inside of you and this like excitement for like being in some small part, a part of this thing that's happening underground in New York city. Flash forward several years to the world of musical improv. Um, how, how do, 
I guess I'm asking like, how does the one grow into the other? How, what's the relationship in your experience in your mind? Or is that like too weird a question? I think, well, for me, I think it's sort of both of them are based on somebody doing short form and then somebody saying like, this could, we could do this the whole way. Yeah. Um, I think for, I, I, I don't know. I think, a lot of times musical theater, musical theater sort of serves a bit of a different purpose. So I think there was something dangerous and exciting about being at UCB at the beginning where Mm -hmm. it is like, you know, it's not cool. Comedy's not cool yet. Mm -hmm. So it's like, Hey, this is, um, this is this underground thing. It's sort of like a wizard teaching you like there are, Mm -hmm. this power is dangerous, um, but it can do amazing things Mm -hmm. and you can be really, you know, this kind of stuff, not, not a lot of people know about it, but you can accomplish like really wonderful things and really insightful things, especially like when you hear about the UCB and what they did with their shows of like getting people to rip up their blockbuster cards and mm-hmm. stuff like that, where you're like, this is, and you know, anarchic in a, in a lot of ways, which is so cool. And it was, it was, there was a desperation to it too, where it was like, you know, all of us were, I mean, I remember you were waiting around like four hours in the city to do like totally uptight rehearsals. Mm-hmm. And then going home to Staten Island at night, and it was just like taking that ferry, you know, super late. I was driving back to Jersey at Rock, you know, uh, at Rutgers, and there was a certain desperate energy to it, where it was like, I don't know if this is anything. I just know it makes me feel so good. Yeah, it was exciting. It was just really exciting. Yeah, um, I think, I think you know, based on where music, where improv is now. Um, I don't know that the development of musical improv had that same dangerous excitement to it, but it is cool to see like, it's great to tell a story mm-hmm. in a, in an improv show. And I think that's, what's so uh, addicting about uh, doing narrative when you do a musical yeah. uh, in a way that like, for me, I'm not, I like, I'd be fine to never do a Herald again. Yeah. Like I'm just, you know, it's just not that fun for me, but um, I think it can do great things, but doing a narrative in musical for me is like super fun. Cause you get to tell a story Yeah, and it, it's that it's the pressure that you add that then may, you may hit or you may miss. But I think, I think there is a little bit of, a, of an excitement in terms of there's more of a Jesuit thing now about musical improv than there is about improv. And everyone sort of wants to have a team or like something. But so there is that kind of nice feeling of like, I can go to a city and, you know, sort of, I don't mean this in like a, 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 like a arrogant way. I just happen to be in, there are like three, you know, big centers of musical improv. So Mm -hmm. like I can go to another city and already just be the person who's going to teach a musical improv class and do a show that's going to show people what's possible in a way that like, do you remember when TJ and Dave started coming around? Sure. And we were at Magnet and we were sort of told or through Armando Diaz studios or something like that. I think, I think it was Magnet. Yeah. I remember, uh, I remember being told in the lobby at Magnet that like they were in town and you'd like go for free because they just needed audience. Yeah, that's right. Um, but you remember like part of the thing about Magnet is we were, you know, we were being told that this sort of, um, instruction in comedy, this more relaxed attitude, um, toward the beginning of a scene was 
not only possible, but but as funny. It's right. not funny. You know, it yeah. could be as funny or anything. And then you weren't necessarily sure if that was right mm-hmm. until you saw TJ and Dave. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, it changed the question from like, is our aliens out there to like, Oh, I just met an alien. How do I get to where they are? Right. It just changed the question to like, okay, it is possible. Now how just do I get to where they are? Yeah. So I think like seeing a narrative long form musical improv show to people doing like short form musical games, it's might you know, could be something like that where it's like, I, I didn't, I didn't know that people could do that, but except that people just did it. Yeah. So how, how do I get there? And it breaks your mind in all those fun ways. Like when we would, you know, text each other after like, it was like the best to introduce people to TJ and Dave. Could you get those texts after that? It's like my head hurts. Yeah. <laughs> How did that? Yeah. Not to, not to be a jerk about this, but I feel like I introduced a lot of people to TJ and Dave and, and was part of a crowd of people who were partly responsible for helping to, you know, uh, uh, get people there. Now I can't even get a goddamn ticket to I their know. show. I know. Like, come on guys. I know. Well, to be actually to, just to corroborate what you said, you absolutely did. You got me to go there. And you are the reason I started at Magnet. Hmm. I was in level, I was, you told me about Armando. And you're the reason why I was simultaneously getting worse in a, in a UCB level three. And it like owning eight minute scenes in a slow comedy class. Yeah, It was just like. And I needed it at that time because, like, I was doing such bad work. Yeah, that was my experience too. Is was at the same time as I, I'm. I'm kind of like I don't think I can do a Harold. I don't think this is for me anymore. Um, meeting Armando and and uh, they weren't eight minute scenes just yet, but they were like it was just an approach that was like, oh, I can like thrive here yeah. like I remember Megan and I were talking about this the other day doing a rehearsal oh, with Eric. Even if they weren't eight, I'm just saying if they were eight, no, I would, still would have owned He would have killed it. That's true. <laughs> it, it, I still, those like early slow comedy shows down at Juvie Hall, down on, on, uh, on Bond Street, yeah. I, I still, in my mind, am like, that's the best improv I've ever done. That can't possibly be true, but that's <laughs> where the memory is. It's like, that's, that's the one that clicked. That's when it felt like, oh my God, this is, I can be part of this too. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I just wanted to remind you that you were saying that you and Meg were talking about yeah. something. Was that about the first time that Aaron Bergeron, when he was coaching us, had us do 10 minute scenes and that feeling of, geez, a 10 minute scene is such a thing possible. I, I just remember like actually sweating when it was my turn to go up and go do a 10 minute scene, you know? But yeah. like, it's interesting because like that thing of, of is this possible? It's like in in my understanding of of like where where like the people who were like surrounded Dell in the early days got their kind of like um, zealousness from was that the sort of like mainstream comedy world around them was kind of hokey. No offense to anybody who was working back then. This is just kind of what I've heard and and understand. And so, like, the entire idea of truth and comedy was, like, sort of, uh, um, like, a call to arms for people. And and as much a call 
to arms as like a fuck you to people who they felt had like sold out and were only doing comedy to make a living, but it was like shitty comedy that like these are people who like, no, we're serious about it. And there's always like a thing, uh, I think, with comedians, I'm not talking about the improv or sketch community, but like thinking back of like Catskills comedians or Mm -hmm. like going back, there's like a little bit of like a sense of shame involved where like you're a performing monkey. You know what I mean? Like I'm here to humiliate myself so that you can be entertained between plates of whatever you're eating. Mm-hmm. It's like a perceived hokiness to it. And so like you have these like cutting edge comics and you have UCB coming along and they make comedy really cool by by making it super smart, but by also having kind of an attitude of like, well, we're going to piss off our audience we're not here to perform for you. And, and, you know, like I've heard like Matt Besser say that like, we like pissing our audiences off (laughs) and it made it possible for comedy to be something that was cool and was like currency for people who had like similar points of view about stuff. It wasn't hokey anymore. Mm -hmm. Then you have something very, very different. Like the world of musical theater to me is the opposite of pissing your audience off. If anything, to tell a good story, it, it, you win your audience and audience is amazed when you tell a good story, but it's the same thing of like, Oh, it's totally possible. It, it, it makes me think of what you were saying before of like the good shows are the ones that like kind of feel like they're going to break apart and then don't. Mm -hmm. It's that sense of possibility, that sense that you're pulling something off together uh, that makes it so exciting, whether it's in the vein of like pissing an audience off (laughs) or whether it's in the vein of like really satisfying an audience. But there's a big difference between, and this is why I like stories on stage too, and I agree with you about the Herald. I still enjoy performing Herald and I still teach Herald, Mm -hmm. but Herald has mutated in my mind to much more of of like a fractured narrative structure than a game-based structure. Yeah, because I really enjoy the satisfaction of watching a story be told that 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 is driven by understanding the motives of the characters in the story, see the choices that they make and see what the outcomes are. And watching it as an audience, seeing people be able to pull it off doesn't have that same thing of um, make me laugh, comedian. Yeah. It, it's just this thing of like, I'll shut up and I'll pay you attention for the next 40 minutes as you do this. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I, I mean, I look, I saw some amazing Harold's Dillinger and mm-hmm. Respecto and all those people. I mean, that we all got to see were great. But I, you know, I haven't done a lot of Harold since level six, yeah. uh, level four back then. So for me, excuse me, um, the um, the Harold was the structure mm-hmm. basically, and it was like nine out of 10 Harolds that I saw or did were completed. And then one was enjoyed mm-hmm. and you could tell, you know, like cadaver, I, 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 a kid cadaver, this whole team we were on when we did Harolds, some were really good. And, but you know, most of them for me were like, okay, mostly it was just a pride of completion of, mm-hmm. you know, you read through the manual and you did the steps. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> as far as, um, I don't remember everything you just said, but I do remember something about um, sort of the, the the audience bringing the audience along. And I wanted to say that I I, I felt feel like there's like a perfect. I've been through like three different phases of my relationship with the audience, mm-hmm. which is like at first it's sort of like, where are you guys going? Like, can I come? Like, you know, like 
what, what do you, can I give you money? Like, please. Yeah. And then there was like, uh, I'm going here. None of you are welcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't like it, like you're probably not cool enough to get into this club. Mm-hmm. Um, and now thankfully just by doing it for a long time, I'm sort of at a, a place where I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm going to this party. You're all welcome to come, mm-hmm. but I, I'm still going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would really love for you to come along, but if it's not your thing, uh, please go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a super important, um, uh, relationship with the audience. So as far as like a musical improv show, y- when the, the best ones aren't, when the best ones look like they're going to crash, I think it is that sort of relationship where it's like, we're going, you stay with us. We want you to stay with us, mm-hmm. but we're not going to telegraph how this is going to end. And hopefully we don't know because we'll pull it out. And that, that I think treats them with a certain amount of that allows them to be easy. It's easier to watch a show when you know, you don't have to worry about the performers. Yeah, for sure. Which is sometimes what makes stand up so hard is like, you know, stand up is uh, people will say, or a bad improv show. What makes it painful is that you care about the performer mm-hmm. and you really want them to do well. Cause you know, the expectation is to be funny, but if you don't have to worry about them, you can only enjoy. And mm-hmm. so, not being worried if we're going to do, if, you know, if we're able to pull it off, but being tense about how we're going to do it is exactly what you want. Yeah. Um, and that's what makes those releases of tension once you are, once you wrap it up. So, so wonderful. Yeah. I, I read a, a pretty interesting article by James Wolcott. He was talking about one time he, he went to a taping of the tonight show with Johnny Carson. And that the thing that amazed him was when you see Johnny Carson in person, the distance between him and the audience is actually huge. There's like a vast ocean between him and the audience. And he said that the effect it has in real life is you really worry for Johnny Carson because it, it, it's just like in that space is like where he's going to die. His jokes are going to die. And he said that the thing that, Carson was so great at was using dead jokes as a way to get the audience on his side, that he had so many bits ready to go to kind of um, not let a dead joke make it feel like he was dying, but he yeah. could handle anything that that space then became like your conquering hero space. Yeah. But then Carson filled that area. But it's always that question of like, well, is somebody going to be the victor here or are they going to die right here? Yeah. It, you know, going back to that thing with the audience too, it's interesting because I've had those phases myself and, and, and don't you feel like the second phase is like a direct reaction to the first phase where the first phase is kind of like, you feel like you're at the mercy of the audience and you feel very uncool with the audience and very like wanting their approval. Then the second phase is like, fuck you people for making me feel that way. And it's just kind of this thing of like, you counterbalance for it. Yeah, it, it it you know like you kind of like get your revenge on them a little bit, and then like hopefully when you outgrow that, you're in that third phase, which is like totally confident in where I'm going. I know that where I'm going is going to be awesome. Come along, you, you, you know. But if you don't want to come along, that's okay. Well, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, I feel like so much of performing is about oscillating really far on both sides of what is right, mm-hmm. and then as you get 
further along, the oscillations just get smaller. Yeah. You know, like, like when you first start and you're, if you're doing well, you're like, man, I'm good. And then you get bad and you're like, man, I'm bad. Every yeah. bad show means that you're bad. Yeah. And then you suck for a while and then you're really good for a while and then you suck for a while. And as you get on, you don't never do bad shows or you don't, you know, or not as well as you can do and you don't never do good ones, but sort of the oscillations on either side just get a little smaller where if you, if you have a bad show, it's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Probably hopefully have another one. And if you have a good show, it's like, uh, which, which I remember the, the thing that I was going to say earlier, but, um, you know, you sort of get to, you're like, Oh cool. That was a fun experience. You're not sitting there like, man, I, I did great. Mm-hmm. Um, which is actually the dangerous place to be after a good show, because if you, if you come off a good show, you feel good after a good show. But if you come off thinking I did great, it makes it that much harder the next time you go do a show. Oh God. Yeah. Well, the other thing is like, I feel like for me, my best shows, my favorite shows are the ones where I talk completely obnoxiously after mm-hmm. where it's like, uh, someone's like, good show. And I was like, yeah, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a like asshole thing of like, if you really felt like you owned what you just did, you'd sound like such a jerk, yeah. but you don't feel that way. You really feel like, Hey, it wrapped up and I can't believe what that person did. So like, Hey, we were all in there together experiencing yeah. that thing, yeah. which makes you sound like such a dick, but it's, 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 it, it, it is so true in that moment that I'm yeah. okay sounding like a dick because that's how I feel. I think, well, I think it, it's all in how you say it. Like anything, it's like the attitude that you have because there's no shame if you come off of an awesome show and somebody says, man, that was an awesome show. There's no shame in going like, agreed. Yeah. I'm with you. I yeah. agree. You know, like it, there might be like a little bit of a dickier thing of like, nah, uh, you're not, nah, we could have done better. Mm. Yeah, I'm not that guy. Yeah, I, I had that conversation with uh, Jarrett Bernstein a while ago where it's like, uh, if you, if you don't like a show, if somebody comes up to you and says good show, you say, thank you. And thank you, you eat it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's well, sometimes that's actually a very difficult thing to struggle with is when you do a show that you hated, <laughs> but other people seem to really enjoy it and, and want to talk with you about it. And that is actually much harder at least like if you do a show that sucked and everybody thought it sucked, you're embarrassed, you're humiliated, but at least like we'll get past this together. But if you did a show that you hated, but everybody else seems to have liked, you feel very like isolated. Oh yeah. Go to the bar. Don't just talk about something else. Yeah. Eat it for a couple of days and yeah. come back and somebody else will be that person the next show. Exactly. But th- that's something that you learn with experience too is like, man, we all get our turn on that ride. Mm-hmm. And and you start to take it a little less personally over time because it's like, well, I know, but there's another at bat to be had. Well, going back to the heroin thing, you yeah. you just become less of a junkie where yeah. you don't need every every hit doesn't have to be great or you're like, oh no, God, like oh God, am I just like, am I you know this stuff isn't doing it for me anymore? You're like, okay, this is I'm on a, a regular dosage of heroin so okay this one wasn't that good next one will be great and you just you put it all in aggregate and and thankfully your your batting average tends to get better yeah yeah you're on a new ucb character team i am i'm on a team called characters welcome and i just want to say that uh, despite what i said earlier i don't hate what we do yeah Uh, i used to hate character stuff but now i think it's wonderful 
And uh, yeah, I'm lucky enough to be on a team that was a workshop. And then they just turned it into a team coached by uh, two wonderful people, Michael Hartney and Justin Tyler. And um, we uh, we are uh, 12 people doing some uh, really cool work. It's It's not at all. It's very collaborative. It's all of us basically just trying to make each other better. Mm-hmm. Uh, our show, I assume, will have been this last Monday, mm-hmm. based on when this will air. Yeah, um, but we're the third Monday of every month, eight p.m. at UCB East. Yeah, uh, twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen. Just so, you know, because we, you know, yeah, twenty fifteen. Um, this will be in the cloud forever. Earth. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> on Earth, Earth years twenty fifteen. Yes, and it might not even be all twenty fifteen. I don't think we're guaranteed. I'm guaranteed for the year. Has it worked? You guys all have say in each other's characters. Yeah, do you ba- create characters for each other? It's basically like a sketch, like a sketch group yeah. or a sketch uh, class. But we just pitch our own stuff, and then you get notes from twelve different, pe- fourteen, you know, twelve different people who all have different perspectives. It's so you get. Um, you get a whole spectrum of notes, but you come in with your thing that's you. Mm-hmm. So what's nice is you never leave your characters. It's always a refined version of whatever it is that you like. Mm-hmm. So there's nobody, you know, you get to f- still have that thing that's you. And, you know, like I kind of sometimes it's a whole nother thing, but I kind of get bothered too sometimes when people think that comedy is all math. Mm-hmm. It's just pure mathematics or science. But what I like about this is you come in with you and you refine it and you chip it down and you're, you make it efficient, mm-hmm. but it's still you. Mm-hmm. And so that's uh, so far what it has been. And it's been fabulous. Yeah. You did not like musical improv. You've become a great musical improviser, a leader in the field, I would say. You didn't like characters. You've become a great character actor. I Honestly, I just became less of a dick. Yeah. <laughs> I just... I just was like, that's not real thing. You know, I, I started as an improv bum and yeah. I just thought I was going to bum around. So I was like, this is the only thing. Yeah. And then I was like, oh no, that's good. Oh no, that's good. Yeah. Okay. You know, I turned 30 and all of a sudden everything, <laughs> everything's fine. 30 puts things in a certain kind of perspective. My, my experience with 30 was, it's like, oh, that, that feels real. Oh, it was the best. Yeah. It still is. Yeah. Well, there kind of is, I don't know. It just like, the number stayed with me for a long time and in suddenly time became very real. I've become no more ambitious than I ever was. I'm still the same lazy bum I've always <laughs> been, but there's kind of a feeling now of like, Oh, you know what? This is my life. Mm-hmm. I'm living my life. I, you know, like it's no more dreaming about what life is going to be like. Here it is. This mm-hmm. is it baby. It's a cool thing, you know, cause like you go like looking for yourself, right? Like you want to, it's like, what am I going to be when I grow up? What, what do I love? What do I, what's my contribution? What's my mark going to be? But like, you know, you do have to kind of stop being a dick to start to find it because like, you're only going to find, like growth is only going to be possible and change is only going to be possible if you like find those things that you didn't like. Like you're not going to grow into what you already like. You already like it. You already mm-hmm. are that guy. It's it's finding how you can stretch and grow and and fit into things which at first don't look very comfortable. And for that, you got to be kind of 
You can't be a dick to yourself. That's the big thing is like being a dick to yourself stops so many choices from being possible. Yeah. I actually feel like that's sort of the, the progression of a comedian, or at least for me, it was like, for me, I thought at first that comedy, I was one of those people who thought you had to be miserable to be a good comedian. Yeah. And for me, comedy was like that first, it was at first just about, I'm different from people. Mm -hmm. And and this is all the stuff I disagree with about people. I don't think there's anything that inherently funny in that. Yeah. I think there's, it's when you get older and you sort of start to fit in, it's like, I'm different, but I'm trying to do this. Mm -hmm. I'm really trying to do it well. And it just shouldn't be this hard. Yeah. I think that's a super funny perspective. Like, I think, I think that's basically like what makes Louis CK so good. Mm -hmm. Um, not to overanalyze or, I mean, (laughs) what a, what a, outlandish opinion that Louis CK is good, mm-hmm. but you know, in 2015 on yeah, earth, in honor. Yeah. Uh, Mars in 2030, Louis CK sucked. He's the overlord. That asshole sold out big time. <laughs> uh, he's in the Mars's cat skills. He, he became the spokesman for Chick-fil-A on Mars. <laughs> Guy's an asshole. What a jerk. But you know, I think it's like out of his, out of his comedy comes the idea of like, look, I'd love to, disconnect from you but i have these two daughters i'm trying to raise as real people yeah and so like i'm really trying and everything's a lot harder than it should be because of how i am yeah because of how you are yeah but we're still going to try to make this work and i think that's what kind of growing up does is you're like i'm not always right let me try and figure out what i'm wrong about yeah but also let that erode a little bit like, okay, I can be wrong about this, but I think I'm still right about this. Yeah. And you're sort of navigating this world where you're, especially in your thirties, you're not under attack and you're like, okay, what was I, what was just defensiveness? What was I wrong about? Right. And, but yeah, what am I still holding on to? Because like empathy is a great thing to learn, but it's also very lame, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) it's, it's, it ends up being what you miss, uh, your ability to hold the convictions as firmly as you did in your teens and your twenties. You can, I mean, empathy can be misapplied. You, you can end up not really empathizing with other people. It, it just kind of like feeds your ego again to be oh, like, totally. I'm so supportive and with you and, and aren't I amazing? <laughs> but I think like, you know, it, it I, I, one thing is like when you're younger, It's like, I'm weird. I'm different. And I'm going to, that's what I'm going to get by on. I'm going to, you know, and I think like you get older and, and it's like, everybody's weird. Everybody's different. It's, it doesn't have to be like, and this is one thing that like having a community of comedians is very nice. Whatever your community is, the fact that there's a community of like-minded people is very nice because it's not like I'm weird. I'm different. So I'm against everybody else it's i'm weird i'm different but i still fit in i still plug in with many people who are weird and different in many different ways and and it sort of doesn't have to be quite so you stop trying to like prove your own worth all the time yeah totally what's also fun is like when you realize that because you know sometimes with improv theaters and and it was true along it was true years ago more than it was now but there, sometimes there starts to be like a gang mentality where mm-hmm. you start to um, have your identity by which theater you're not at and mm-hmm. which theater you are. But like any improviser that you think is like 
couldn't be more different from you. You're still more alike. You're still, it's still more, uh, more similar to you than anyone else that has passed you on the street. You know, it's like, there are only these like differences on 0.05%. It's like army, Navy, air force kind of. Yeah, totally. You know what? And part of it too is like, there are like legitimate differences in sensibility, but I think a lot of that shit between people just boils down to, eh, it gives people something to do. It gives people shit to talk about at bars. Yeah. But it's, it's also like, you know, if you start in your twenties, like, like you were saying, like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Um, I'm terrified and this place seems to give me a home, you know? So it's like, I have to form some identity around this thing because and, and I need protect it. this home too. Now I'm a I'm a I'm a guardian of this home. Yeah, but yeah. also like I need to say that this is my home out here right. because I'm I'm out of college uh, and I don't know I'm supposed to know a lot more than I already do. Yeah, and this you know this place is something I can center my identity around, like a like a lovely parasite. Right. Well, uh, that's an interesting thing because like so many of us come at it. Right out of college, mm-hmm. and and like any cult, like any cult, <laughs> but like your your kind of like sophistication and intelligence on stage begins to grow faster than your knowledge of what the hell to do with your life off stage, and <laughs> like you do, you have to kind of grow into that over a number of years, and it's not the easiest thing in the world. It, it for a while, there's a big discrepancy between what you're like intellectually and comically capable of. And sort of emotionally and and adultly or whatever the word is capable of, you know, like you're you're much wimpier when it comes to being a human being who's able to function well than you are when it comes to being funny or good at this stuff. You get good pretty quick at this stuff. Life takes more time. Yeah, it's funny because every performer sort of has like a Superman and a Clark Kent. Yeah, and on stage, the bigger your Superman gets, you're just like, I hope people don't see Clark because oh, yeah. Clark like has no idea what he's doing. Oh yeah, he then, doesn't even work at the Daily Planet. He just like sits and hopes nobody yeah. sees him because if they saw Superman, they'd be like, mm. yeah. But you know what? That's what I like about Superman three. I'll tell you because that's <laughs> the one where Lana Lang she likes Clark. Yeah, you know, and like you know, like. Clark is the real man there. He's like, he's built up the character, but you know that like he identifies with his own insecurities. Yeah. You know, like each of us gets a Superman three in our lives. People don't dislike your Clark Kent. Your Clark Kent is great. Love your Clark. Love your Clark, man. Yeah. That's, that's actually part of growing up. That's like John. Hell yeah. John is my Clark. And I've grown, I had to grow to love him. Like John and Bander needed to meet and they've met and John is great. That's John is my Clark. John Bander, thanks for talking, man. Oh, my pleasure. I was going to say part of empathy is realizing how far over we've gone. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Some empathy for the people who want to use this room next. But I had such a pleasure. Thanks. Likewise. Thanks for doing it. Bye, everyone. Bye. You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast. The Magnet Theater Podcast is produced by Evan Ford Barden and engineered by Grant Michael Goldberg with executive producer Ed Herbstman and is recorded at the Magnet Theater Training Center in New York City. 
Here at the Magnet Training Center, we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and so much more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes as well as all the other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. The Magnet Theater podcast can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support.